Hello, everybody. We're here with your favorite podcast host, Barbara Bray. But for those of you who've listened to past podcasts, you know that I call her mom. Hi there, mom. <laughs> Hi, Andrew. I just love being here with you. I love we're, being here with you, see, too. See, we're on Zoom and we keep the you know video up so we can see each other because we can't see each other because of COVID. <laughs> You know what? If if quarantine means that I get to see your face more often this way, I'll take what I can get. Ah, uh, me too. Thank you, Andrew. This is wonderful. It's always so good to talk with you. Speaking of talking, though, tell me a little bit about the person you're about to listen to, about uh, Catherine Prince. Oh, she's amazing. I... um. I've known Catherine for some time. In fact, um, I actually interviewed her in 2015 when I was with Personalized Learning. And the thing that she does is she's a, uh, a strategic forecaster of the future of learning. She's like well-known all around, actually in the United States, but in, in the world. And she works with KnowledgeWorks. And I'm just blown away by our conversation. I can't wait for people to hear her. Oh, I love it. <laughs> All right, stay tuned and enjoy your com- the conversation with Barbara Bray and Catherine Prince. Well, I have someone here that I've known for a long time and I've been following her work and I'm blown away, just blown away. I'm talking about Catherine Prince. I'm so excited that you're here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here too. I think I met you in 2015 or around that time. You were doing some work on with KnowledgeWorks. Do you want to just give us a, a little background of you and how you got there? And Sure. So I actually joined KnowledgeWorks in 2006 to do um, entirely different work than I'm doing now. We're helping to manage a professional learning network for teachers in schools we were working with in Ohio at the time. And the same year I got to KnowledgeWorks, KnowledgeWorks commissioned its first map of future forces affecting education from the Institute for the Future because KnowledgeWorks wanted to guide its second five-year strategic plan as a young organization. And then KnowledgeWorks realized that it had insights about the field of education that needed to be shared much more broadly than just with our organization and, and published it. And that started off our strategic foresight program. So I gradually started working with that forecast in different settings in different contexts and um, with our second one, got involved in helping it get out into the world and then kept just kept getting more and more involved, learning more and more about what it meant to do foresight, what it meant to engage people in applying insights about the future to their work. And um, it's been a great professional learning journey. So now I get to lead the, lead a team of four in doing our own foresight, publishing forecasts every three years and, and lots of other things in between times. So I just jumped in and never introduced you. So now that you did that, I'm going to go back and say about you is that you're one of the United States foremost educational futurists, and you do lead the exploration of the future of learning. And, and this is something that I've been following along, reading the forecasts since you started. Did you start those in 2007? or Our first one came out in 2006. Six. Mm-hmm. And they were right on, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and, and are you vice president of the Strategic Foresight? Because I didn't say that. I, I am. I, I want to make sure I have it right. And you are an agent of change. You have done a TED Talk. You've done uh, so much writing. It's helping a lot of people 
understand how to navigate through some of the strangest things that are happening in education now. This latest thing you're doing, um, I'm just going to go there because I think we could talk all day about this, right? This is... Uh, yes, it's big. Uh, and so we're going to have a blog post that goes with everything. So I'm going to put a lot of links in and uh, you, you even had a TED Talk. I'm going to put that in because it's amazing. I, I just asked Catherine, um, when I first met her, I think... Uh, your daughter was, let's see, three years old or something like that. She's nine now. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so she talks about her daughter in the TED Talks. So you have to make sure that you learn about that. So this whole thing that you're talking about now is this newest paper. Human, It's like a vision for human-centered learning. Do you want to give a little background on that? Sure. So when KnowledgeWorks wrote our fifth comprehensive forecast on the future of learning in the context of this huge era shift that we're experiencing, driven in large part by technological change, but also by social and economic, political and environmental factors, we identified this provocation for the future, this possibility based on how drivers of change in that forecast were unfolding, we could make learning more human-centered, meaning that we could reorient our teaching and learning systems to put all the people involved in them, the young people and the adults, including community members at the center. That was one of many provocations in that forecast, but it was one of the ones that we were excited about. Sometimes we identify future possibilities that we view as being neutral from our perspectives or we view as being something we wouldn't want to see come to pass. But we were so excited about the prospect of making learning human-centered that we decided to dive into it one of our deep dive projects and, and learn more about what that could be. And the, the paper became really a, um, a vision document. Again, sometimes we're very neutral in our foresight. This could happen, that could happen. But with human-centered learning, let's say we said, we want this to happen. Let's, let's talk to people in the field and ideate on what, what this could look like. Let's make this idea more real to offer it to folks in and around education. Well, I found the paper, I not only read it online, I was showing Catherine that I printed it out and it's all covered with highlights and post-it notes. And <laughs> I'm just sitting here thinking it is all about people because I've done a lot on personalized learning and it seemed to be hijacked by thinking that we could use an algorithm or something to you know meet the needs. I mean, we still could use technology. We still can do all of that, but somehow the person got left out of person personalized learning. And now you're bringing it back. Yeah. And there are, of course, as you know, way different approaches to personalized learning, not all of which are technology-based. And as you know, KnowledgeWorks helps schools and districts transition to personalized competency-based learning with a very relationship-oriented approach. But even, even given that take on personalized learning, it's still existing within the context of education systems that are often, while they serve human development, they're often not truly putting people at the center as we would like them to. And they're not necessarily aligned to our current needs or and certainly not to our future needs. So we we wanted to say push beyond, you know, the constructive approaches to personalized learning and other great approaches like project-based learning or, you know, restorative justice or mindfulness in classroom to say these are all great and there are many great innovations and practices in education. But what if we took a more systemic view and really thought about how we would reorient the whole system versus practice in specific pockets or in specific places. Well, the way you did it, it made so much sense because 
with society where there's this uh, relationship between learners, educators, and the system seemed to make it so it it was teacher-centric, but the teachers didn't feel like they had a voice in it. Mm-hmm. And so you actually answered why we need a, you the vision, because we were, talked about some of the questions. But what is the view of human development if it's at the center? What does that mean? It's a, a big idea, but I think it really means that we kind of re-envision education from the inside out. So let's, if we say we want to think about putting the well-being of all people involved in the in our learning systems at the center, and then the development of the young people whom systems are serving as well, that's a significant redesign challenge. Say we're really flipping the system inside out and saying we if we challenge our assumptions about how it has to work and how it works today, what would be different if we elevated people? And there were four big elements to the vision that we articulated. We were imagining and hoping that if we did make this flip that I'm describing, that education would really liberate young people to participate fully in society, that schools would organize for love and belonging, that we would approach leadership so that it was really intentionally inclusive and co-creative, and that learning would become a lifelong personal practice and learners would really be supported in developing the skills to carry that out. I think we need to talk about each one of those. I mean, I, <laughs> it, I mean, I, I just want to bring up because of COVID and because of how um, everything was flipped upside down, we didn't, I'm listening to teachers who are, well, seriously burning out and stressed. And it seems like this also exposed inequities, exposed different experiences, there were a lot of students that didn't show up. There were Mm -hmm. a lot of parents that were frustrated. So when you say liberate young people fully in society, that first one you talked about, Mm -hmm. how do you get them to be fully motivated or excited about being part of a society and part of learning in this new world that we're talking about? What we were imagining is that um, and and these ideas were informed by the people whom we interviewed, was that education would really help learners realize themselves as people, like un- understand their emerging selves and their identities, what motivated them in the world, their sense of purpose, which of course could vary over time, and develop agency. Um, so lots of opportunities to engage in relevant learning experiences, to reflect, to express themselves, um, so starting with kind of that understanding of the self in the world and then and broadening out. So we, we also thought that it's um, really critical for learners to develop critical consciousness about how they as individuals interact with and are affected by society to be able to really situate themselves in that broader context to engage in a lot of kind of critical inquiry about how the the structures and processes of society create privilege, power, oppression, to really kind of understand that there are these big societal patterns and systems at play, and then to consider kind of how they as individuals are part of those and might want to contribute to making the world more like they would want it if it's, you know, if it's on the assumption that that would often be out of alignment. Well, I noticed that you you have the signals of change in every one of these with the four, and you provide um, examples of where either their organizations or their schools 
or communities that are addressing this. Do you want to share one of them? And these are the people that you've interviewed. And there's some overlap between our interviewees and these signals. And then there's also secondary research where we say we we have this mm-hmm. I, the sense of future possibility. What can we find that's emerging today that's beginning to move toward that? So one of the ones we found in regard to this education helping to liberate young people to participate fully in society is a high school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania called City of Bridges High School. And it has a student-led project-based curriculum that it integrates alongside a, a mindfulness orientation. So students engage in practices of compassion, justice, peace, and dignity. And they also have a, a chance to cultivate their agency by participating on all the school committees and governance structures, as well as by contributing to community-based projects. So it's this interesting combination of project-based learning with a, um, a mindfulness overlay that's focusing on helping to transform the world into a more positive place. And felt that, that this, this current school is one that's moving in the direction that we're describing with this vision element. I want to go there. I, want, <laughs> I actually would visit, I, my aunt lived in um, Pittsburgh, so I would, I would live with them every summer. I love that city. It's amazing. It is a, a great place. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm actually going to put a link in our post so people can see that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I know they're going to, I want them to go take the, you know, look at the whole uh, report because it's amazing. But I just want to point out some of the things that you're sharing. Sure. So then the next thing touched my heart, schools organized for love and belonging. That is amazing because that's one of the things that kids are saying now because they're home, they don't see their friends, they couldn't go to the prom. You know, there's all these things that happen. Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, we know that relationships are central to learning, you know, today. And that's, of course, still going to be true when whatever future we all co-create. But when we were imagining, you know, how this could be expressed in human-centered learning environments, is really putting care, elevating care as a central element for the students as well as for the adults who are part of their learning journeys. So helping learners have the security and reliability of a supportive base of care so that they have that foundation for owning their learning and engaging with the world. Um, and then also helping educators have respect and connection, you know, the professional space to thrive in their practice and um, and in their work with their, with their colleagues and their students. So a big part of this idea was an orientation toward companionate love. So kind of genuine feelings of affection, compassion, caring, for others that could be provide the foundation for learners to have the attachment and the security to develop in health in healthy ways neurologically. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the episode. So I'm doing a lot on social emotional learning and empathy. And mm-hmm. this is definitely high up there on my list because I feel like we need a kinder, more beautiful, caring world world right now. So is there anything, you know, any place that you want to just shout out to or um I mean I might definitely had in mind to highlight the efforts to scale social emotional learning that are happening at various levels of education systems. So in, in, in some states are trying to look at it from a statewide perspective and Connecticut is one of those. So Connecticut's been 
had convened multiple kind of sessions with multiple stakeholders to think about how to integrate both social emotional learning and cultural competencies across not just schools, but also health agencies and other social student serving organizations. And then also to help teachers develop their social emotional skills so that they're, you know, maybe it'll be present, you know, with their students. So I'm, I, you know, I think there's just loads of great work happening in that space, but it's um, interesting to see it in Connecticut trying to make it systemic. I mean, that's interesting, the whole state. Because mm-hmm. I've actually done some work with Connecticut and some of the people at the DOE there. I didn't know that. I'm going to have yeah, to go and check. Yeah, that's something we we were happy to uncover in our research. And then, I mean, another d- important dimension of this is um, teaching racial literacy and, and having curriculum that's rooted in diverse experiences, which is a dimension of belonging that can be all too absent in, um, in curricula and, and how we teach those curricula today. So um, it's, you know, really helping people have the skills to engage across difference, to address our legacy of racism, and then also to help students have a kind of broad enough range of learning experiences that they feel they belong, not just in that classroom or whatever the learning environment is, but in the world. Well, it's very big now. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it all of a sudden we're really exposed to this and we don't know how to say, what to say, how to say it. What are the, be culturally responsive to everybody. I mean, right now uh, I live in Oakland, California, and it's uh, very diverse. And I worked in the schools and they taught how to teach tolerance and, but I'm white. And, and, you know, there's a lot of things I don't know. And so that's why I think it's, uh, it's really good that you brought up uh, some of the work from Howard Stevenson. So it'll be, I'm going to make sure we go there, check that out. In fact, your next thing you talk about is being intentionally inclusive and co-creative. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. So this, so really thinking about how leadership might operate differently than it tends to today um, so that it's much more oriented around horizontal partnerships than vertical hierarchy and really encouraging distributed power and innovation, not just among people who work in school buildings or in districts or state departments of education, but also, you know, across communities and including um, learners when appropriate. So really thinking about how to cultivate dense network of connections that can bring in many forms of expertise and knowledge to serve every learner's needs and also to help dismantle our inequitable systems and structures. A lot of this would involve deliberate efforts toward inclusion, lots of trust building, new kinds of communication, holding a place for students and teachers and parents and many stakeholders to kind of express what they want and think about together about how to to get there. It wouldn't be limited to just thinking about kind of, well, what then what does school look like? What does education look like? But also thinking about education's intersections with other systems that support youth and families, the children and families, and um, and where are those overlays and those connection points that, that need to be thought of as a, a web or an ecosystem? Well, you brought up one that I'm involved in is the Othering Institute, because I'm it's right here in Berkeley at the university, and I've attended many of their webinars. It's like that feeling of belonging, we need to hear it from all points of view. And um, so I I like that you brought that up. Is there anything you want to mention about some of the others or that one? One of the things that we were intrigued by with the other Institute's work is their use of 
targeted universalism. So trying to say, you know, can we identify targeted solutions that help potentially or historically marginalized groups achieve the benefits of universal goals? So it's less about kind of closing some of perceived gap and more saying we want this for everybody. It might be hardest to get here for people who meet this demographic or experiential profile. So how might we design solutions for and with them that would help them reach that goal and then probably help everybody else do that too. See, I like that because a lot of people think, well, you're only working with one group, and but it, it's I'm reading the Some of Us of Heather McGee's book right now. And I mean, if if we help one group, it actually helps all of us if we're aware of what it what it, how that impacts us when we don't. Yes. When I saw that and saw some of the other resources that you share, it just, it's such a value. This, this paper is really um, amazing. I'm going to go on if it's okay. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. Now this one I've worked on for a long time is learning becomes a lifelong personal practice I, my kids make fun of me. I, I would always say, oh, I love learning. I love learning. And they laugh at me. Now they get it because <laughs> they're older and they see it. Because when you stop learning, you're not living. I mean, right. it's that whole thing. Mm-hmm. So want to share a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we all know that we must engage in lifelong learning and that we benefit from doing that as well as from life-wide learning. And I think there's increasingly, it's becoming... We're putting a finer point on understanding that need given how the workplace is changing and just how rapidly jobs are changing and the skills that we need to bring to different situations are are shifting. But with this this vision element, it was really being intentional about helping people develop the skills so they, they know how to cultivate their ongoing learning over time. When they're in school, once they move through their careers, when they simply want to learn something as, as people, helping Children and youth develop the agency to know what they're trying to achieve, to develop plans for getting there, techniques and habits and and reflection that can help them understand what what did I experience, what did I I learn from that, what worked for me, what might I want to adjust, being really deliberate about supporting that kind of a a practice versus just hoping we kind of pick it up as, as we go through school and then later through life. Some teachers have said they wish we they could bring back you know, the cooking and woodshop and life skills and Mm. finances, you know, how do you handle your finances? Because something happened, those, but when it also the social emotional learning, you know, understanding why you may not learn at that point. Mm -hmm. So you're noticing your learning as it's happening and reflecting on it. Yeah. I mean, you also bring up mindset and some of the other things, but is there any one of the signals of change that stands out? Well, they're all great. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I, I, they are. Um, I'll highlight One Stone Lab School in Idaho. So it is um, a student-led tuition-free high school that really focuses on developing student leadership and impact. So their students have a lot of agency in pursuing relevant purpose and passion-driven learning experiences. And then their assessment framework is very focused on supporting growth and it covers disciplinary knowledge, social emotional skills, and creative problem solving, as well as professional habits of work. So there's a variety of modalities of reflection and observation and assessment that are used. And it very much focused around helping students develop that robust practice of learning that along the lines of what we're describing. Is this a high school? It is a high school. High school. Mm -hmm. You know, it's 
I'd love to follow them, see how they, you know, after they finish school, Mm -hmm. you know, because uh, those are all the things we talked about long ago saying we need these. Yes. How long have they been around? Uh, I don't know for sure. My, My sense is maybe about five years, but I may be off on that. Well, we're going to have a link to it and I'll check out more. This is, yeah, I mean, the, we talk about it, but people, you know, teachers are saying, but I've never seen it. I don't know what it looks like. And also leaders are probably saying, how do we move to it? So maybe they can go visit. Yeah. And and all of these things are just reflecting kind of bits and pieces of these future possibilities, but they do help make the future possibilities more real. Of course, we articulate a set, set of future possibilities and people decide what they actually want. And, you know, by, by, by um, exploring and experimenting and learning together, it helps people get clearer about their own visions and how they want to pursue them. I mean, every place is different. Yeah. And the people are different. And the people that you bring on board, you know, they might want to go in a different, because of the demographics, because of the community, because of the partners that they have. Mm-hmm. So you have, did we do all four of those already? We did. We did. Oh my gosh, that was <laughs> that was just amazing because it's um I think it pulls them it together in such a unique way that I, it can make sense for anyone. Any any school, it doesn't matter if you're private, public, um you know, or even homeschooling. I think people need to know this is something you can do as a parent. You know, it, we really encourage people if they're wanting to engage with these ideas to think about Kind of how do how do these vision elements connect with the their stated vision statements, the values that they are already stating and enacting? Where might these vision elements or the vision as a whole challenge what what they assume to be true about learning about their particular learning environment? And then where might they they open new possibilities? So it's they really are a starting point for that kind of organizational and individual reflection in a lot of different kinds of settings. Well, I'm going to put in some of the screen captures. Because you have making sense of human-centered learning, you pulled them together, but you also have, and they need to they need to go download the paper and they need to look at all the questions. But you have questions that can help make sense of the vision, and then you have questions about those questions. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of opportunities to reflect. <laughs> I love it because this is the way when you get people together. They can take these questions and really talk about them and share. And um, I, I, I could just take them all apart, but we did. I think this is a good overview for people. And then they should, I, I really think they really need to download this report, right? And and then review it and then use it and then reach out to you. I, I'm putting in contact information is there any anything you kind of overview or any contact information you want to share with my audience that may not go to my post? <laughs> Folks are always welcome to reach out to us through KnowledgeWorks website. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. On Twitter, I'm at Kat Prince, and our email addresses are available through our websites. So we're always happy to get in touch to exchange ideas, to think about how we might support people in applying concepts about the future like this one to their context. So yeah, we're just um, happy to think about how we can be of service as people think about how they want to shape the future. This is wonderful. And it's Cat Prince, K-A-T Prince. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they might feel like, oh, they're going to go to a cat. That's true. But <laughs> <laughs> this is just wonderful, Catherine. I just feel like uh, this is really timely. We needed it now. Thank you. And it's such an honor. 
that uh, you're here with me. I saw this. I think it was just coming out and there's a webinar that goes with it. So I'm going to have that also included on the uh, post if people want to see it. I saw that first before Kate reached out and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to. (laughs) to." Well, I'm so glad you did. Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat about these ideas and it's just nice to reconnect. Oh, thank you, Catherine. This is so wonderful. So I really appreciate your time with me. Thank you. And stay safe. You too, Barbara. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) This is Barbara Bray. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning podcast and my conversation with Catherine Prince. You know, make sure you check out the blog post that goes with this podcast about Catherine. It's on my Rethinking Learning website. It includes her journey with KnowledgeWorks the strategic forecast about the future of learning and her newest paper on human-centered learning, which we talk about. You can subscribe to my website at barbabray.net to receive announcements, updates, and you can even check out the guiding questions for my book, Define Your Why. I hope you subscribe to my podcast because we'll be sharing ideas, stories, and reflections during these uncertain times. Now we need each other more than ever. All of our stories matter. Keep sharing your story. And please stay safe. Be well.